This is the Core I Am Five Pearls podcast, bringing you high yield, evidence based pearls. I'm Dr. Shreya Trivedi, an internist at BIDMC. And I'm Zach Avigan, a second year internal medicine resident at BIDMC. And today we'll be talking about fluids, the forgotten about drug of internal medicine. I think our one of our take-homes here is that when you're thinking about prescribing IV fluids, to really think about them like you would any other medication, which one, how much, how long, and when do you think you can stop? That's Dr. Samira Farouk, a nephrologist at Mount Sinai. And to better gauge which fluid, how much, how long, and when to stop, we have to understand what makes up the fluid and where in our body that fluid goes. Yes, I cannot wait. This is the episode that I wish I had heard maybe 10, 15 years ago. So let's get into the pearls that we're going to be covering today. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl one, where does fluid go? How much is one liter of isotonic saline actually contributing to the intravascular volume? And how does that compare to, say, a liter of D5W? Pearl 2, hypotonic fluids. How much sugar is actually in D5W? Does it contribute to volume overload? And how does it compare to half-normal saline? Pearl 3, isotonic fluids. What's the difference between normal saline and balanced solutions, and does it really matter? Pearl 4, albumin. How does albumin compare to other fluids in terms of volume resuscitation? Pearl 5, packed red blood cells. How much does a blood transfusion actually end up in the intravascular space? And does it pull along water like colloids? Zach, we're often in the business of trying to either take off fluids or trying to really buff up someone's effective blood volume. But I think what's been a big knowledge gap for me before we started looking into this episode was how much does a liter of fluid that we're giving through someone's blood vessels actually stay in the blood vessel? Yeah, Shreya, that was a big learning point for me too. What if I told you that when if you give a liter of normal saline, only a quarter of it actually stays in the blood vessels? Wow. Yeah, that, uh, yeah. <laughs> that was my reaction too. I, I definitely did not understand that before working on this episode, but we'll go through it step by step. I think to really understand this concept, we first need to remind ourselves about all the places that fluid can go in the body. Oh boy. <laughs> to keep things simple, we really have three main categories. There are fluids that distribute to all the water in the body, fluids mm. that go just to the extracellular space, and some fluids that just stay completely in the blood vessels. Okay. Okay. So then how do we know which fluids are the ones that go all over the body and which fluids are the ones that just stay in that extracellular space? Yeah. That's where we need to think about osmolality and tonicity. So the way I think about it is that all this stuff in a fluid makes up the osmolality, but only some of that stuff are effective osmols. And what makes them effective osmols is that they don't easily cross the membrane so they can pull fluid from one space to another. Tonicity is essentially the effective osmolality. And so an example of an effective osmol would be uh, something like sodium, uh, glucose, potassium, whereas an ineffective osmol would be something like urea that can kind of move freely across a semi-permeable membrane. Okay, so I guess the biggest takeaway here is that when we're choosing a fluid, you need to know what actually makes up the fluid. 
And I think people can be easily mistake thinking, okay, well, I know the osmolality of the fluid, but it's really about knowing what those osmols are. Do they have tonicity? And can they effectively pull fluids out of the cell? Right, exactly. And it's those effective osmols that keep that fluid in the extracellular space. So fluids with more tonicity are better at staying extracellular. Great. So let's put this into context. Let's start with isotonic fluids, like the fluids that we're reaching for probably all the time. This is the fluids that has the same tonicity as our plasma, normal saline, lactate ringers. Right. And what makes them isotonic is that they have plenty of those effective osmols like sodium and chloride that normally live outside the cells and then can hold on to fluid in that extracellular space. Okay. So salts help that whole liter of normal saline or LR stay in the extracellular space. But what percentage of that actually gets into the intravascular space, right? That's the part that we care about. Intravascular space is the plasma, the stuff that's inside people's blood vessels. What is important is that when you give someone an isotonic fluid, say one liter of uh, normal saline or, or plasmolite, then only about 25% of that is going into the intravascular space. And so we should think about giving one liter of isotonic fluid as expanding the intravascular volume by 250 milliliters. And if you want to get nerdy about it, we got to think way back to that page in first aid that has all the body compartments. So if you remember, of that extracellular space, only 25% of that real estate is the intravascular space. Okay, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because normal saline, LR, they're isotonic. They have the same tonicity as our plasma. So isotonic fluid will distribute equally in the extracellular space. And so 25% of it goes to the intravascular space and 75 in the interstitium. And contrasting that to a hypotonic or zero tonicity, essentially fluid like dextrose 5 and free water, that is going to uh, really distribute uh, within all of the total body water. And so you're only going to have about, you know, 8% of that that's going to end up in the intravascular space. So much, much smaller. So the teaching point here is that free water has no effective osmols, no tonicity to hold on to the fluid. So the water just goes everywhere. Right. So DFIW distributes all over the total body. So let's break down where we get that 8% staying in the blood vessels from. Again, my vague recollection of that one page in first aid is for the total body water, two thirds of it is inside the cells and one third of our total body water is extracellular. Right. Exactly. And then we can do some quick multiplication. So we said that one third of the water is extracellular. And of that extracellular volume, only one quarter is intravascular. So one third times one quarter is one twelfth. So just about 8% of your total body water is intravascular. Okay, so that's a really good nugget that only 8% of the total body water is intravascular. So if we give a liter of DFIW and it disperses through the whole body, only 83 mLs or only about 8% will actually stay in the blood vessels. Another point to make about this is... Um... This is assuming everything is perfect, okay? And in the hospital, that's just not the case. You have sepsis, liver failure. These are estimates. And so and it's sort of like 250 mils of normal saline stays in, in the intravascular space. But like, yeah, in a patient who's septic, you're, that'd probably be great if you could get that and achieve that. And, and maybe it's because they just don't, you don't have a good oncotic pressure. You have, uh, endothelial, endothelial capillary beds that are sort of uh, sloughed off from sepsis. And so you have leaky capillaries. So there's a lot of things that could perturb this and, and cause issues. That's Dr. Matt Sparks, a nephrologist at Duke. And what a great caveat. And if we're going to put this all together and recap, it sounds like in the real world, especially in any inflammatory state, 
how much fluid stays in the intravascular space is probably a little bit less, but it's a good kind of rule of thumb to think about a liter of isotonic saline, about 250 cc's are going to stay in the intravascular space, but for a liter of free water like D5W, only about 80 cc's stays inside the vessels. Yeah. And we just want to point out, you know, what we don't want you to take away from this is that fluids are actually less volume than we think, right? Or that a liter of saline has secretly been just 250 cc's this whole time, right? You know, from your clinical experience, what it means to give someone a liter of isotonic fluid and how the patient's going to react, you know, but we do think, especially when you're comparing different types of fluids like saline and D5W, it's actually helpful to be explicit and really understand where each fluid goes and how they compare to each other to help us best use them. I am really appreciative of that reminder. I think listeners will really appreciate that, Zach. Okay, so now that we have the basics of body compartments, let's start with the most basic fluid there is, water. Or in our case, D5W. And as a heads up, we'll be using D5W and free water interchangeably here. The main reason we give free water is for hypernatremia. You can think of it as just giving a lot of water to help dilute that sodium and bring down the hypernatremia. Right. D5 is made up just of water and sugar. There's no sodium. Zach, just how much sugar is there in D5W? Yeah. So it's D5 or 5% dextrose in water. So in 100 cc's, 5% would be 5 grams. And in one liter, 5% would be 50 grams of dextrose. Ha, 50 grams of dextrose in a liter. You know, one thing I didn't know before this episode is why we add all that sugar in the water. It's funny because I remember when I was in med school, a surgeon telling a patient, hey, this fluid is going to give you nutrition. But now I know that's not the case. I like to think of D5W as uh, isotonic asterisks. Okay. It's basically there to serve a purpose so that you don't lice all your red cells. Like if you just gave sterile water, you cannot give that into someone's vein because it will lice all the red cells because it's so hypotonic. It's no tonicity, zero. So the dextrose is put in there to basically give it isotonicity when you put it in, but it rapidly is metabolized and goes away. Fascinating. So it all comes back to that tonicity and sounds like sugar is basically a temporary effective osmol, like a temporary wing woman or a wing man (laughs) trying to, yeah, trying to keep the water inside and keep the red cells from bursting. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think it's good to remember that the important part of D5W is the water, not the D5, right? The D5 is just there as that temporary wing man or wing woman, as you said. So, you know, when we're trying to fix hypernatremia, sometimes on rounds, we'll talk in shorthand and just say, start them on a D5 drip, but just make sure you're actually ordering D5W. If you order something else like D5NS, that's just saline with some added sugar. There's no free water. I feel like you've uh, probably caught one or two rookie mistakes there. Ordering yeah, I've, the de- I've definitely been there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So going back to that 50 grams of dextrose, how much sugar is that? I mean, half the patients on my list have diabetes. So help me put this into context. D5W, I mean, it is 50 grams of glucose mixed in um, or dextrose into one liter. Um, so how, how many grams does a Snickers candy bar have of sugar? 20 grams. I mean, this is more than a candy bar. Okay. Um, one pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, um, is about, uh, six and a half liters of D5W. The whole pint. I mean, that's it. That's an entire binge on Netflix. <laughs> 
Wow. So just two Snickers bars. That's not much sugar. At least I hope not. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because, you know, sometimes when patients can't eat anything, they're NPO, we give D5W and we're like, okay, we're adding some nutrition, but really it's it's a couple of candy bars a day. Yeah. that, That reminds me of another pain point we run into, which is how much do we weigh giving D5W to someone who's hypernatremic, but also has diabetes? Here's Dr. Jeff William, a nephrologist at BIDMC, with his thoughts. You know, if you're trying to correct somebody's hypernatremia and you have no other way of doing it, right? They're not taking PO, they don't have any sort of enteral access, then what choice do you have? You know, they're losing more water, they're going to become, you know, increasingly obtunded, they'll lose their thirst, they won't be able to correct it at all. And, you know, we can fix hyperglycemia, we're good at that, right? We have insulin. Um, you can't fix somebody's water deficit without water. And I'll tell you, hypernatremia is miserable. You are so thirsty. It is the only thing your brain is going to think is you got to drink. And so if you have a patient in the ICU who's not sedated, who's hypernatremic, this is something that, you know, you just think about how that would feel. Uh, and, and, and so we need to correct that. Okay, so if a patient's hypernatremic and we have to give the D5W, just give it. And we can always manage the hyperglycemia later. Great. And I think the other thing we worry about with any fluid is contributing to volume overload, especially when a good handful of our patients have end-stage renal disease or systolic dysfunction and can't handle as much fluids. Yeah, that's something that I feel like we struggle with all the time. And you know, just going back to Pearl 1, you know, we said for every liter of free water, just 83 cc's stays intravascularly. So how much does 83 cc's really impact volume overload? So how much does it contribute to volume overload? A very, very, very small amount. Does it contribute at all? Yes. Is it a significant clinical amount or clinically significant amount? No, it is not. Unless you're giving liter after liter after liter of it. When you calculate a water deficit, you give a lot of D5W, you do not have to worry about this causing pulmonary edema. Ah, I really appreciate hearing that. I guess for the pathophys nerds out there, why is that? Yeah, this was new to me, but basically the lungs are built a bit differently from the rest of your tissues with a few safety factors built in to try to prevent fluid from distributing into the interstitium. We'll leave some more details in the show notes, but what we really need to know is that in general, pulmonary edema is driven almost exclusively by increased hydrostatic pressure in the pulmonary vasculature or specifically just more intravascular volume. I guess that makes a lot of sense because if we think back to Pearl 1, right, we now know that only 8% of D5W really stays in that intravascular space. It sounds like that's really the only space that we care about or that can contribute to pulmonary edema. Yeah, totally. And you know, I will say one interesting takeaway for me has been really changing the way I look at an ins and outs chart for a patient, right? Like when you look at the intake, if you just look at the number, all that volume is treated the same, whether it's isotonic fluid or free water or something else. But if you think about how much it affects the blood volume, it takes three liters of D5W to have the same effect as just one liter of saline on the intravascular volume. Yeah, I think that's a good learning point. Something I'll change when I look at the ins and outs of a patient. You know, I think instead of looking at the absolute volume given, think about what type of fluid was given and how much did that type of fluid actually affect the blood volume. And before we finish, we should talk about another hypotonic fluid, half-normal saline. Ah, yes. I'm so glad because I think most of us scratch our heads with half-normal saline. 
Whereas if you give a hypotonic fluid, like half normal saline, for example, a part of that will go into the into the intracellular um, space because you're you can think of half normal saline, a liter of that as half a liter of water plus half a liter of normal saline. So that half a liter that will behave like the isotonic fluid and that half a liter of water is going to distribute throughout both intra and extracellular compartments. Okay, so say we have a liter of half normal saline. How much of that half normal saline actually stays in the intravascular space? And to put it into context a bit more, how does half normal saline compare to say a liter of good old normal saline or D5W? And so just to kind of break down the numbers, a liter of normal saline, 250 mLs will go into the intravascular space. A liter of half normal saline, 167 mLs will go into the intravascular space. And a liter of uh, D5 water, 83 mLs only will go into the intravascular space. Right. So half normal saline is kind of the in-between between free water and isotonic and about 167 mLs actually goes in the intravascular space with a liter of half NS. What are situations when we might reach for half NS? So one example of that would be that you want to both, um, you know, uh, expand the intravascular space, but maybe you also have a um, indication for a hypotonic fluid, say, for example, like hypernatremia. And so you have kind of two things coexisting at the same time. And so you give a fluid that's essentially in the middle. And so in my mind, I kind of think of, you know, half normal saline as this kind of in between when you have kind of competing interests. So just to recap, our three big takeaways for free water are one, D5W is just free water plus dextrose, and the dextrose is just there so the red cells don't lyse. Two, there's not that much sugar in D5W. And three, since so little D5W stays in the intravascular space, unless you're giving liter after liter, it rarely contributes to pulmonary edema. So the other hypotonic fluid is half normal saline. And basically, we can think about it as half isotonic fluid and half free water. So it's hypotonic in that it dilutes your sodium, uh, if you want to think about it that way, but it also has some tonicity, has some salt, right? So it's going to hold onto some fluids in the extracellular space. So you might want to reach for it when you have a patient who's hypernatremic, but also needs volume resuscitation. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto, And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code CORIAM50 at factormeals.com slash CORIAM50. All right, time to talk about isotonic fluids. I know there's been a lot of debate between normal saline and balanced solutions, so let's just jump right into it. 
Lots of heated, lots of heated debates. <laughs> so let's go over the makeup of first normal saline. It's made up of 154 milliequivalents of sodium and 154 milliequivalents of chloride. But 154 milliequivalents of chloride seems way more than most of my patients' plasma, right? Most of the time when you look at somebody's BMP uh, in the clinic setting, right? When they're feeling well, their chloride is usually in like the low 100s or so. So that is not, you know, normal. And that is why, you know, you know, some of us call it abnormal saline. Um, if you want to get real nerdy about it. Yep. Abnormal indeed. <laughs> and that's, yeah. And it's all because of that chloride. What about balanced solutions? The idea of balanced solutions uh, was developed in sort of the surgical world. It was the idea of replacing plasma that was similar to plasma. <laughs> the idea that, um, that you should give somebody a fluid that is just sodium and chloride is kind of ridiculous. And then this this whole idea of creating sort of the ideal solution that was the most native um, to what the human plasma would be and how could you replace that? All right, so let's break down the two most common balanced solutions, lactated ringers and plasmolite. Yeah, so the two solutions are a little different in the numbers, but relatively similar, right? So both LR and plasmolite contain about 130 to 140 milliequivalents of sodium, only about 100 milliequivalents of chloride, note that, and then four to five milliequivalents of potassium. And just like how our plasma has bicarb as a buffer, they both use a different buffer that acts as a base. Yeah, that's really the main difference between the two of them is that they just use different buffers. So lactated ringers use a sodium lactate, but plasmolite uses gluconate and acetate. It sounds like the buffer doesn't even matter too much, right? Since all the buffer actually just gets broken down into good old bicarb anyway. You know, balanced solutions, as you said, Shreya, are much more similar to plasma, especially in terms of that chloride. And that definitely seems in theory like a better idea than abnormal saline, but how does that actually pan out? Right, let's start with some of the biggest trials, the SMART and SALT-ED trials. And so every, I think, month or two, they would like block the entire thing to say, all right, we are all using saline. Um, and then we are all using um, LR. And, and those were the two main things. But it was a lot of patients. In the SMART, which is in the ICU, 15,000, almost 16,000 patients. They basically uh, showed in the ICU that you had a lower composite outcome of death from any cause, new... Um, kidney replacement therapy or dialysis that would occur in the ICU, persistent AKI um, uh, that was all favoring the use of balanced solutions. Huh. That sounds pretty convincing that maybe we should just stick to balanced solutions, right? seems like lactated ringers showed better mortality, was better for the kidneys. But that does lead us to basics, uh, which is another randomized clinical trial from Brazil. Now, the difference is instead of using lactated ringers, they used plasmolite 148. So um, this uh, really was a shock because we had all been living post-smart and salted, and there was no difference in 90-day survival. And really across the board, there was no difference. And just to add, there was another similar trial, the PLUS trial that also compared normal saline and plasmolite in ICU patients, and again, found no difference in mortality or kidney outcomes. Ha, huh, interesting. But then again, and this is like stuff that I learned from nephrologists on Twitter, 
there was a big meta-analysis of over 35,000 patients and it did find a small mortality benefit between balanced solutions in ICU patients, but didn't quite reach significance though. Oh, so close. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. You know, so we have all these studies and some are going one direction and some in the other, but what do we make of all that conflicting data clinically? I have no idea. I, yeah, people are blaming plasma light. I think the big time balanced solution people are just won't ignore it. Yeah, it's hard. You know, I, I've definitely seen people who are permanently shifted to lactated ringers and haven't really changed their practice. Yeah, it's a pretty hard to go back, right? After there's some signal in some trials saying normal saline might have more AKI and put patients more on dialysis when they get normal saline for resuscitation. The knock on normal saline has been uh, this idea that um, giving too much of it can create this hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. But basically the way to think about it is that an excess of chloride creates a state of a, of a non-GAP metabolic acidosis. And obviously any state of acidosis is not good for an ailing patient, especially a critically ill ailing patient. And we've all seen it, right? We've all seen giving a, a large amount of normal saline to a patient and inevitably they end up with a chloride and like the high... 100s, low 1-teens, and their bicarb drops into like the 15, 16 range. Yep. I have seen too many of those basic metabolic panels. Yeah. Now, I think another interesting thing to point out is that the kidney really regulates its GFR based on flow. So if the kidney is seeing really high flow, it'll turn down GFR. And if the kidney sees low flow, it'll try to turn up the GFR. And what's interesting is that the way the kidney actually senses flow, funny enough, is by chloride delivery. So if the kidney is seeing a lot of chloride, it thinks the flow is really high and it'll turn down the GFR. So just think about that for a second. If you think about a septic patient whose kidney is already at risk, that really high chloride basically tricks the kidney into dropping its own GFR. And in a vulnerable kidney, that could be enough to push it into AKI. And so one of the mechanisms that is called tubular glomerular feedback. And so in the macula densa, whenever you have increasing levels of chloride, it then turns to the glomerulus and shuts down and clamps the afferent and efferent arterial. So you do not make any more. Your GFR goes down to zero. You don't make any more filtrate. So ironic that the electrolyte we forget about the most is the one that the kidney cares about the most to regulate flow. Yeah. I will say, just to push back on that chloride theory a little bit, if you really look at the trials comparing normal saline and LR, the serum chlorides in the normal saline group were only like one or two points higher. So even though that tubular glomerular feedback mechanism sounds really cool, I definitely won't fault you for saying it may be a little bit far-fetched for one or two points of chloride to explain a mortality difference. Yeah, I've, you know, I really appreciate you bring, bringing that up. It sounded too good to be true and, and was really kind of an exciting theory to think about. But I guess whatever the mechanism may be, I think the takeaway is that most of us are reaching for LR unless there's a compelling reason not to. Yeah, you know, every now and then I do hear a few myths creep up about LR. Uh, and the first one is hyperkalemia. The reason it's a myth is because I think it's best described as a drop in the bucket. I mean, let's just say you're giving a liter of lactated ringers and um, it has about four milliequivalents per liter, okay? So you're giving literally four milliequivalents of potassium into into somebody's body, okay? And remember, it's a, a fluid that's gonna dis- redistribute in the extracellular space, right, in the extracellular fluid. So we're talking about four milliequivalents that are diluted in one-third of the body's total body water. 
And what's really crazy is that there's even some data that normal saline may raise the potassium more than LR because of the non-anion gap acidosis it causes. Hmm, interesting. What about the lactate myth with LR? There is an issue that when you measure lactate in a lab, you know, you're not measuring lactic acid, it's lactate. And so if you give someone lactate ringers, you will make the lactate go up just a little bit. And that's something to note when you're measuring serial um, measurements, but it does not affect um, the pH. This is not lactic acid. And the last myth is thinking about calcium, right? So we've said LR is more like plasma, so it also has a little bit of calcium. So is there any issue in giving LR in patients with hypercalcemia? I guess it would be no. I mean, it's a kind yeah. of the same idea, very, very small volume compared to the total you know, body water and how it's distributed. I'll tell you, um, in nephrology, we get some tough hypercalcemia cases. And the last thing I want to do is be fooling around with more calcium going in. It's probably similar to the issue with lactated ring or, or the, the potassium issue, but um, I think if someone has hypercalcemia, I probably would stray away from LR. So I think theoretically it makes sense, right? Someone has hypercalcemia, you're giving a fluid that has calcium, why would you do that? Just use another fluid. I don't disagree with that, um, but I think the argument's the same as potassium, that relatively speaking, when you're putting a liter um, with this certain amount of calcium um, into a much larger um, volume, that you're going to get a, a pretty big dilution. It's not going to have much of an effect. So just to sum up, balanced solutions like lactated ringers are at least as good, if not better, than normal saline for kidney outcomes and mortality. The problem child may be all that extra chloride, which can lead to acidosis and trick your kidney into reducing your GFR by tubular glomerular feedback. Right. And LR is totally fine to use with hyperkalemia, elevated lactates, and the jury seems to be out in terms of hypercalcemia, but I'm sure that'll change as we get more data. All right. We've talked a bunch about crystalloids, right? The isotonic fluids, the hypotonic fluids, the salts as, as Zach likes to call them dearly. But now we wanted to shift gears into something else we often are putting into our patients to beef up their volume, which is colloids and proteins. To talk about colloids, we're going to introduce a new term, oncotic pressure. So whereas for small molecules like salts, we talked about tonicity, for large molecules like proteins, we instead talk about oncotic pressure. So oncotic pressure, the particles are, are big, right? There's actually fewer of them, but they're really big. So they don't cross membranes. So they just, that's right. They kind of just stay there and they exert an oncotic pressure, which pulls water to it. The teaching point here is that proteins like albumin stay specifically in the intravascular space. And then on top of that, it can even pull in interstitial fluid into the blood vessels. So for our hypotensive patients, if our main goal is to expand that intravascular space, I would think that a collar like albumin would be the best way to do it. Giving one gram of albumin can um, attract 18 milliliters of water. And so then they kind of extra extrapolate that out to say that 100 uh, milliliters of 25 grams of albumin can expand the intravascular compartment by 450 milliliters. And so the equivalent of almost two liters of um, isotonic saline. Um, in theory, it is a very potent expander of the intravascular space. 
Okay, so in theory, 25 grams of albumin can draw in enough fluid to expand the intravascular space by 450 cc's. Compare that to isotonic fluids, right? Throw back to Pearl 2, or Pearl 1 at least. A liter of isotonic fluids expands the intravascular space by 250 cc's. So I'll just let that one sink in. 450 cc's compared to 250 cc's. Yeah, that's a huge difference. And I know this has been studied a lot. So why aren't we using albumin all the time? You know, you can think of so many examples of this in medicine where it seems like such a great idea and then it gets studied and there's no difference. And then people are like, that's crazy. Like, let's, you know, study it again. And then same thing, like there's no difference. And then people are like, that's still crazy. Let's study it again. And then somebody finds a difference. And they're like, see? And then someone repeats and they can't find a difference. <laughs> so, so I think that, you know, albumin has, has been that sort of story where it seems too good not to work and that we have something like this. So trials over and over again have compared isotonic fluids and albumin for resuscitation and found no difference in mortality or renal outcomes. Much to my dismay, I was always rooting for albumin. I know, it's confusing. Like you would really like to think from the physiology that collard would be better. Any ideas for why albumin just isn't as good as we'd expect? The question is how long does it last? And is it really more effective than pumping in a, you know, uh, a, an isotonic fluid that's going to kind of just equilibrate in between both spaces and you're giving plenty of it. Okay. So it seems like the big downfall with albumin is its half-life. In theory, it should draw in a bunch of intravascular fluid, but for whatever reason, that effect is too short-lived to make it any better than good old saline. Yeah. And not to mention the cost difference. It's like $100 for a bag of albumin compared to like two cents for saline. Yeah. Jazak, I can see you're on your QI block right yeah. now. <laughs> so, but why don't we summarize our big takeaways from this section on colloids? So colloids like albumin are big molecules that stay specifically in the intravascular space, unlike crystalloids. On top of that, albumin exerts an oncotic pressure that draws in fluid from the interstitium back into the intravascular space. Unfortunately, even though that sounds like it would be the best volume expander, except for patients with cirrhosis, it just doesn't seem to work any better than LR for volume resuscitation. Yeah, womp womp. But it does seem, uh, as one of our reviewers noted, that especially in patients with dialysis, there are some ongoing studies on use of albumin in patients with end-stage renal disease. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll we'll have to record a a redo of this uh, episode. (laughs) All right, Zach. What about packed red blood cells? I know it's a bit controversial to talk about in a fluids episode. So controversial, Shreya. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just hopefully, hopefully people are accepting. But you know, we are often giving PRBCs in resuscitation. So I know a lot of people also think about PRBCs like colloid too. So I think it's worth diving into. Yeah, I'm glad we looked into it. And it was definitely really eye-opening for me to pick Dr. Williams' brain about this. Yeah. And so just some some background before we get into it. A unit of packed red blood cells is about 300 cc's of volume. That's what you see hanging up uh, on a patient's IV pole when they're getting a transfusion. And just like we started with, with every fluid, we have to ask, where does that 300 cc's of blood go? The volume that you give with the packed red blood cell, like the bag, is probably going to stay in the intravascular space, right? So if you're giving a, packed, a bag of packed red blood cells straight to the intravascular space, then that 300 cc's that you give is likely to stay there. Right. So it's mostly red blood cells. So it makes sense that all those cells are staying in the blood vessels. 
which basically means that whole 300 cc stays intravascular. Compare that to like a liter of LR where only 250 cc stays in the blood vessels. Yeah. And I don't know if you felt this way, but I'm just going to go right back to my soapbox about ins and outs <laughs> charts. Um, Love ins and outs. <laughs> I, I think one r- really important takeaway for me was also changing the way I look at ins and outs charts for blood transfusions. For intake, a blood transfusion is only going to show up as 300 cc's, which really doesn't sound like much. But functionally, as you said, giving a unit of blood expands that intravascular space just as much or even a little more than giving a whole liter of LR. Yeah, really, really interesting to put that into context. Yeah, and I think it's important to recognize because clinically, most of the time we're giving isotonic fluid. So our brains are like wired to think about volume in terms of isotonic fluid. So in a way, the volume from a blood transfusion is way more than your brain has trained you to think it is. Or how much ins and outs make you believe. Yeah, exactly. Just like when we said earlier that in a way, volume of D5W is way less than your brain has trained you to think it is. Yeah, really interesting to think about that. I think the other thing about blood is I often have heard people talk about blood as a colloid. I'm curious, you know, does blood draw any extra fluid from the interstitium the way colloids like albumin do? And I think that the the question then is, will the packed red blood cell infusion actually attract more water into the intravascular space? And I don't think that necessarily is true. But the reality is that in comparison to the sort of oncotic pressure overall, the the effect of packed red blood cells is actually relatively small because of the amount of particles. So this was definitely a learning point for me. I, I always assumed that red blood cells also acted as a colloid and had oncotic pressure to draw in more fluid. Yeah, and I think another way to put it, it seems like is proteins like albumin exert oncotic pressure. Cells like in PRBCs don't pull in any water. So just to summarize this quick pearl, red blood cell transfusions can be great for resuscitation because they stay almost completely in the intravascular space. The whole 300 cc's from a unit of blood stays intravascularly versus about 250 cc's from a liter of LR. Right. But when we compare red blood cells to proteins like albumin, red blood cells actually don't exert any oncotic pressure. So they don't draw in any additional fluid from the interstitium. That is a wrap for today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your team, your colleagues, give it a rating on Apple Podcasts, whatever podcast app you use, it really does help people find us. And if you want to add your own tips, share your challenges, tweet us, leave us a comment on our website page, Instagram or Facebook page. Thank you so, so much to our peer reviewers, Dr. Sobna Harmath and Dr. Halbert Rondon for peer reviewing this episode. Thank you to Dr. Shpatia for audio editing. And thank you to the soon-to-be doctor, Priyal Patel, for the accompanying graphics. As always, we love hearing your feedback. Please email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 